Welcome to Men of the Hearts, a monthly podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit Office of Priestly Vocations. Join me, your host, Father Craig Guerra. And Father Drew, maybe. As we explore priesthood, hear vocation stories from priests all over the Archdiocese, and answer questions about discerning a priestly vocation. Tune in every month to wherever you get your podcast and learn more at DetroitPriestlyVocations.com. Well, welcome, everybody, to a new edition, a new episode of Men of the Heart. 2024. 2024. A new year. It's about to get real. A new leaf, a new guest. Yeah. We have a wonderful guest on. He is a (laughs) classmate of mine, and... uh, He's just a really cool dude. So welcome, Father Slayton, well, to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Father. Uh, you definitely have a gift for drama. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's when I have great material, it's easy to bring the drama in. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So yeah. welcome. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm I'm holding together. I'm holding together. Awesome. Um, this is the one day of the week that I don't have a morning mass on. I actually have an evening mass on Thursdays. So oh, nice. I feel oddly well rested, actually. But. Good. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I tell everybody that life shouldn't start until afternoon. It's just everybody should sleep in until like noon. It, yeah. Life would be, the world would be a better place if we got to sleep that long. I have a yeah. priest friend of mine who a Not few sure months back asked me to drive out and drop off some vestments at 6 a.m. And I remember when I pulled up in front of the little house and I brought the vestments out to him, he looked at me and he said, you look a little groggy. And then he said, don't worry, when you become Pope, you can make it immoral to get out of bed before 11. <laughs> noon, make it noon, not 11. <laughs> noon. <laughs> oh. We got some late rollers here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stay up late, get up late. There, that's, that's, I'm not endorsing that's, that. Okay. That's a A-way, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm endorsing it. Right on. Yeah. yeah. And how are you doing, Drew? I'm, Father I'm, Drew. I'm hanging in there, yeah. Yeah, it's been a kind of a, a busy, uh, you guys probably know the gig, but it's been a busy Christmas octave. and Very. Yeah, and so I think just kind of took a little R&R after, once we got into the Christmas season, my brother did a little little vacation, and uh, yeah, it was nice. Got on a mission. R&R, rocking and rolling. Rocking and rolling, played a little golf. The shred session. The shred session. So, you were referring to my old radio show am, back I in the day. Definitely. Yeah, those days are long gone, but. Yeah, no, we, we, we were, we're still trying to, uh, we're, so the little vacation back in Pontiac and just getting back into shredding for the Lord, you know? So, okay. yeah, had some just normal kind of days, popped over to the hospital, daily mass, you know, so some appointments. Yeah. 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 Well, cool. Yeah. Well, Father Slayton, before we get into your vocation story, we'd love to hear just what's been going on in your life. Anything really cool, things that you would want to share with us? What, as a priest, has been really cool in your life right now? You know, I think that uh, my ministry uh, in the last few months has become more and more challenging. But I think one of the things I would say is just watching consistently how God always seems to provide what you need when you need it, Mm. as long as you keep consistently coming back to him Mm. with your brokenness and with with what we lack as, as human beings is what I would say. So I would think that the thing that has been most noticeable to me is everything seems to still be holding together, and I'm able to keep yeah. everything going. <laughs> when we are weak, we are strong in Christ because we rely on him. Thank you, Paul. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely, mm. definitely. Yeah. What would that be in Latin? Fortis. Because <laughs> I know you know Latin. Fortis. It doesn't mean I know the verse. <laughs> Father Pelican, where are you at? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough, though. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, it's good that you know that the Lord has got your back and you're praying. You're, you're just a good pastor. 
I don't want everybody to know that. That oh, like when you. I watch you and and how you take care of your people, you've got this way and just you just love your people. You take care of them. You're a pastor's pastor. You're just one of those good priests. So I just wanted to build you up a little bit because I think uh, you're doing a great job. Thank you, Father Great. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit beforehand um, because, you know, Father Drew was part of the shred session in, in the uh, in the college days, but weren't you an engineer or didn't you have a show or you were a producer? What was it? What did you do in the biz? Oh, yeah, shit. You were on the airwaves. That's what I understand. Not exactly. Um, I had about a five-year stint that I worked as a recording engineer freelance um, at a local um, recording studio in East Point, just north of Detroit. So um, in some ways, it was, you know, I I thought this was going to be a dream job. You know, I'm working with music. I mean, it was not irregular that in the evenings, it was basically like a party, and you basically just had to hit the buttons and make sure everything was functioning correctly while everyone around you was just doing their thing, living it up. And um, yeah, I thought that was going to be absolutely just, you know, wonderful. And then about four years into it, it really started not being wonderful yeah, <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it started getting real uh, tedious, actually. And mm. it was just about that time that the Lord started pulling on my heart again yeah. in ways that made me uncomfortable. But yeah, I was a freelance recording engineer for a number of years. So what does that mean? What did you do? Like... Uh, you ever seen those uh, television shows where the music artist is in the studio and there's always that guy that everybody ignores that just hits the buttons? And yeah, 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 yeah. Tune me up in the headphones. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, that was me. Oh, um, okay. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who, were, who were some of the big, any big artists that you kind of like did some engineering for? Uh, not really big. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I would tell people I was kind of celebrity adjacent, you know. Okay. Um, if you got big enough, you know, you usually went to some big studio big in like Los studio. Angeles or New York or yeah, something yeah. like that. So what we got was we usually got the guys that were aspiring to be big or okay. were within the circle of friends of people that were big. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I could probably say some names you'd recognize, but I... It's not worth it. You yeah, let's not go into that. But Father Drew, before, used to always play ska and rock. Now, you used to do ska, or you were a ska master? You skanked? No, what, what did I you do? <laughs> recorded and produced a ska band once. Okay. Um, it was kind of in my initial days of working in the industry. Did they have a guy that just danced and didn't play an instrument? No, no. <laughs> yeah. It was a little three-man ska band that right on. named itself off of uh, fictitious characters from the Willy Wonka movie, oh. is what it was. <laughs> And, I mean, I, I enjoyed working with them. Well, there is a Veruca Salt. Uh, yeah, I think you've, you're you in the same vein. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, their organization wasn't great. I mean, I think that we had an interesting product, but nothing ever came of it. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For the record, I'm not a huge ska head, but we did we did play a little ska. Oh, I thought you were all we, about we, the ska. We threw on some ska, but we also had, like, some other genres we were rolling to. What were the other genres? Uh, we did a little bit of punk rock. Um we had just like some kind of like '90s alternative rock, yeah. uh, some kind of epic bands from the '90s. The '90s were such a great kind of era, you know. There's just a lot of good, a lot of good music scene stuff. I like way it way better than the '80s. Sorry to say that. I agree. Anybody's. I, agree. I mean, I was born in the '80s, but I don't know what this a fake nostalgia of '80s stuff is all about. These yeah, days, it is kind of right? like it doesn't make sense. Mind-boggling. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna refrain <laughs> from comment. Sure. 
Yeah. Well, Father True, what has been going on in your life? What are you happy about? Like, what's what am I going happy on? about? Yeah. Um, you know, you're smiling. <laughs> I am. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I love, I love my life. I love, uh, you know, we have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, I think just in the church in general, in the United States, being a priest, there's a lot of priestly activity to kind of take care of. Uh, there's a lot of ministry to do. Um, and there's not always a plentitude of us, but I, I love to uh, I love to be a priest of Jesus, and it's been a blast. Yeah, are you listening? We need we priests. need vocation. So that, if that's you out there, and the Lord's kind of nudging your heart, now is the time oh, um, for those of you who woke up this morning and said, "I need a sign from God." This is it. This is your come, sign. Come see the priest <laughs> drinking the Pellegrino here, and uh, he'll he'll move you through the right steps. Bubbly water. It's good. Bubbly that does water, sound yeah. familiar. Yeah. Agua con gas. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so other than that, just kind of, uh, you know, we got a pretty booming Hispanic parish. So um, tonight I got like a kind of to give some what we call themas, uh, some like little talks to some of the Hispanic uh, uh, community on one of their kind of marriage and family ministries. And then we just have normal week like confessions, mass, go to the hospital a lot. Um, do you do mass in the hospital or in the nursing home or anything? We do. So, yeah, I think w- just based on like our, our setup, we're in Pontiac. Every parish is different. So this is in no way saying like we're doing something that well like, my first parish i was in i went to two different nursing homes we go to the nursing home and say mass just as a shout out to deacon uh deacon mike merlot uh who's a great deacon he's our deacon and he does a wonderful job caring for the sick and so he's just diligent as all get out to kind of go visit them he keeps yeah. up with them takes some holy communion all the time so he basically sets it up what we decided to do is he sets up the schedule and because we have so many homebound after covid who will never get out of their homes again um oftentimes just because of like physical issues and whatnot, we just decided like, well, uh, we're going to come offer mass for you, not like all the time, but periodically in your home, because all you can really do is just uh, live stream. And many of them are really just longing to receive Jesus and just that like be at the altar. So we bring kind of a portable altar in and uh, we we offer mass in their home. And so we either hit kind of like, uh, we either visit the homebound or we go to the nursing home or we go to the hospital as well. Uh, typically, I'd, I'd say the majority of ours are like homebound and nursing home. And I got to say, it's been one of the greatest gifts because, uh, yeah, you just, it, there's something very, obviously to offer mass anytime is, is, a, is a tremendous, um, tremendous honor. That doesn't even, there's, there needs to be a greater word than that, but the coffee's still kind of rolling through my brain this morning. But I think just to do it in somebody's home, especially when they're very attentive and they're just longing to like receive Jesus and to have something sacred, the mass, the the prayer of the church par excellence in, in their very house, which usually is just kind of blows them away, especially when they've spent most of their life just, you know, trying to seek the Lord and, and follow him. Yeah. It's just a, it's a tremendous gift. And uh, yeah, it's, it's some of the highlights I think of the week uh, just to, I got to offer mass a few months ago in a nursing home for a priest who was far holier than I, who I'd never actually got to meet um, until I got to offer mass for him at his bedside. And he was still alive, but not really responsive. So he kind of gave me a little blessing at the very end hmm. as I asked him for it. And so that was kind of like the That's only awesome. interaction we had, but it was the, it was one of the highlights of the year for me. So I, I just love personally, I love kind of visiting, I don't know, just the, the people on the margins, you might say, and to, to borrow a line from the Holy Father. So just to say like those who are, maybe uh, part of our parishes and, and oftentimes priests are so busy, like we don't get this privilege, but because we have two of us where I'm at, um, I have a little more freedom and time right now to do that. And deacons just kind of, he schedules it all. I just kind of show up and, and he gets to deacon and I offer mass and 
it's an it's a normal daily mass and it's beautiful cool it's a huge gift so I lo- I lo- yeah i guess i just really love ministering to the the, the homebound in a, in a way that i wasn't maybe i knew that it would be a blessing but it's kind of a unique blessing yeah yeah and the sick especially so that's awesome yeah how about you father craig what's going on in your well, your sphere in your I life s- i went to a priest's funeral the other day we had a couple of priests that have passed away in the last couple of weeks and Monsignor Maloney uh, has been at his parish since 1978, just one year after I was born. So to be 45 years <coughs> in a parish and to minister to the parish and the school, and just to see, like, wow, this is a, a man who yeah. died doing his ministry. And um, it's just really nice when all the priests get together and and to pray mass for, for that priest that has passed away, to see each other and to support each other. I think it's really, really cool. Um, you know, one of the aspects about priesthood that, especially during my ordination, that really touched me was this idea of belonging to something uh, of a brotherhood. And, you know, the documents really talk about, you know, when you're ordained, you are a real brother to the other priests that are ordained, that there is a unique connection. Um, and it's just great to see, mm-hmm. you know, because like you said, we're we're scattered a lot of times. It's hard to get together, but when we do get together, um, I think it's very powerful. And to see or have people see like 50 priests, you know, there at a funeral, I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. So I've just been reflecting on that. And mm-hmm. you know. I don't think I ever experienced the warmth of the priesthood more, ironically enough, than when my parents passed. Oh, wow. Tell us more about that, if you don't mind, just maybe a line or two. Um well, they both passed. Uh, oh, uh, my mother passed a few years back from uh, cancer. Okay, God rest her. And then my father got cancer, oh, and wow. he survived it, actually. He beat it and was back in full remission. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that left him immunocompromised right toward the tail end of the COVID epidemic, and he was a sitting duck, uh, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took him. So, I mean, I had both of their funerals uh, only, you know, maybe two and a half years apart from each other. Um, and of course, that was a difficult experience, but you know, mm-hmm. I was able to get through it. And uh, I just I, all these priests showed up. I mean, I, I, my classmates were largely there, but there was also a um, a gathering of different priests that I would not have expected, but they came out to be supportive, and mm-hmm. it, that that was actually it, it was touching. It really was. Um, yeah. I remember when I pulled into the uh, the funeral home parking lot for the vigil the night before. To my surprise, the archbishop pulled in just before I did, and he just got out and he just embraced me. I mean, it, was, uh, it wasn't something I expected, but I certainly appreciated it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, that level of support was something I was, uh, it, it was a good surprise in the midst of all of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, since, uh, you know, we're kind of on to your vocation, why don't, you know, you tell your vocation story however you want to tell it. And that's not an easy story to tell. That's, <laughs> that's why you're on the show. We'd like to really understand. And a lot of guys who are listening, you know, don't have, might think to themselves that, you know, my life is a little bit different or, you know, why would God choose me? And, and I think hearing all of these different stories is a good thing that there's someone out there that's going to relate to your story. So tell it how you like it. I guess I've always been a little envious when I hear priests and someone asks them, what's your vocation story? And they say, oh, well, I was, you know, praying in chapel one day and suddenly I heard a voice, you know, or yeah. 
something all fell together at exactly the right. We've minute. heard a bunch of those stories, and I'm sure they exist, but that's not how God called me. Um, not mine how was, God called me either. Mine was very gradual and happened well over a ten year period, and it was um, it was more a process that things became clearer and clearer as I advanced. Um, I was born within. Uh, I guess a uh, denominationally mixed family, if you want to call it that way. They, um, my father was actually a Southern Baptist, although he was not anti-Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. He had married my Catholic mother, and uh, he had told me that the priest made him promise not to interfere with raising the children Catholic, and God bless him, he was always very good about that. But I guess there was a little bit of a rounding off of the faith when I was growing up. Um, we attended Mass at the local parish church every Sunday morning. We knew we were Catholic. On the other hand, you know, every morning I'd get up and walk down the street to this little non-denominational Christian elementary school where we were educated. And since it was non-denominational, I, I kind of got an influx of these different Christian influences. And, of course, my you know, developing mind just took all this in organically. I knew there was some slight differences, but... Uh, I, I was struggling to get my head around that. I remember having a conversation with my mother when I was young, and I asked her, what's the difference? And I think she said, well, when the priest takes the host and holds it up and says the words, we believe it actually becomes the body of Christ. They believe it just means the body of Christ. And I, I, that always struck me profoundly. Um, I mean, I used to sit with that. But there were a couple other instances, I mean, looking back in reflection, that my mom said that uh, there were probably, you know, there were hints that I had some sort of calling. Um, apparently, I, when I was about six years old or so, I got a real nasty flu, and apparently I'd asked my mother one day when she came in to take care of me, I asked her, why does God give little boys germs? Hmm. And she freely admitted she had no idea how to answer that question. Now, of course, I didn't realize I was fundamentally asking her the philosophical question of the problem of evil from the perspective of innocence, gratuitous suffering, but apparently my little six-year-old brain was struggling with that. You know, yeah. why does it work that way? Mm -hmm. Why am I in misery right now? I'm six. You know, I can't think of anything horrible I've ever done. But uh, I was moving in that direction, and I think that I already – I remember watching movies where the bad guy got shot at the end. And I remember contemplating, did that cowboy just go to hell? And I started asking questions from that perspective. You know, how bad do you actually have to be to separate yourself from God? Yeah. Um, of course, my mother's favorite story of a vocation in, you know, um, every year we used to uh, spend Christmas Eve at my grandmother's house. The whole family would get together. And going to the evening mass at the local parish was always part of that. We and did we, that. Yeah, we, we did midnight. Well, then we have dinner, and then we'd open, you know, Christmas presents. And, of course, the whole evening as a little child was just this patience exercise, waiting for the presents part, you know. Yeah. But I remember uh, I had gone into the kitchen and where my grandmother had a fryer. Mm. It was just a little, you know, household fryer. But it had these little metal baskets that mm. reminded me so much of the collection baskets at Mass that I grabbed one and I started going through the living room, you know, holding out in front of people saying, money, money. <laughs> And, of course, my father related that at least I learned something from church. You know, I, I picked that up from the service. Um, but now, I mean, when I was uh, seven... Do you walk around your church today with a little fryer basket for no, the collection? Oh. No, actually, we haven't done a collection since COVID. Uh, it'd be interesting to see. <laughs> no, we... Um, 
Uh, so uh, my parents moved into the suburbs when I was about seven years old, and my church experience kind of changed at that. Where point. were you before the suburbs? I mean, were you? Uh, east side of Detroit. Okay. Around the Seven Mile and Gratiot area. Okay. Um, the neighborhood was changing rapidly, but I was too young to really understand that. Um, but we had moved out into uh, St. Clair Shores. We were attending St. Gertrude's. Uh, may she rest in peace. The church is not there anymore. Mm. I mean, it's physically been torn down and replaced with a retirement you know, elder care facility at this point. Yeah. But I think my church experience had changed. I mean, I was an altar boy when I was there. And I do remember sitting there as an altar boy wondering, you know, going back to that whole notion of what uh, my mother had told me about, it really becomes the body of Christ, and it stays the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Which means, you know, when the priest puts it back in the tabernacle, because you have leftover hosts at the end of Mass, Jesus is still there. Yeah. I mean, I was years away from discovering devotions like Jesus, Prisoner of Love, and things like that, which I highly recommend everybody look up. It's an absolutely fabulous Eucharistic devotion. Jesus, Prisoner of Love? Oh, yeah. It was a favorite of uh, Teresa of the Sioux, actually. Okay. Hmm. Actually, that's how she took the name The Little Flower. Hmm. Do you want to explain this to us? I just just learned about this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. this is cool. This is just like wisdom just coming out. It's a Eucharistic... I told you he was smart, Father. Yeah, I told you he was smart. It's a Eucharistic devotion (laughs) from previous ages. Um, Every once in a while, you will find an old holy card. They're usually yellow and very flexible and soft because they've been in somebody's prayer book for 80 years. And you get 120 days off of purgatory if you... Correct. Although that's actually a misrepresentation, but okay. <laughs> so it's called Jesus, Prisoner of Love. Yeah, the idea is is that you would have this dis- depiction of our Lord, and he's kind of like behind prison bars. Uh-huh. He's trapped in there. And then if you look, the outline of the window that you can see him from kind of looks like a tabernacle. Oh, okay. And the idea is that he is a prisoner within the tabernacle. But it's not the tabernacle that restrains him. Obviously, he could get out of that at any point. It's his love for us that keeps him a prisoner within the tabernacle. Hmm. It's like he's accepted that um, that isolation. He's accepted that loneliness of just sitting there, waiting for someone to come and spend time with him, waiting for someone to come and adore him, hmm. waiting for someone to come and make reparation to him for everything he went through in the Passion, waiting to exchange a bit of their time and a bit of their love for the love that he continues to burn with for all of humanity that yeah. keeps him imprisoned mm. within this mm. this condescension of taking the form of the host, if you will, yeah. within the tabernacle. So you're coming to visit him in his imprisonment and yeah. spend time with him and console him. I mean, it, it's a really beautiful way to think about it. And if you look at all these old holy cards, there was always a little flower in a pot sitting right next to the, the sill where the prison bars were. And that's actually how she took on the name the little flower. Because she saw that in the picture? She wanted to be that little flower. Wow. That was her aspiration. She always wanted to be that little flower bringing a bit of joy and a bit of beauty and a bit of uh, affection returned to our Lord as he sat imprisoned within the tabernacle. That is an interesting devotion. That's amazing. I've never heard of that before. I yeah. really thought it was, uh, yeah, it's something that touched me. Okay. Deeply, okay. yeah, that's that's yeah. awesome. So so we want to go back to when you're an altar server yeah, right? I got seven years old. <laughs> but that was a cool that story. That was a great thank side track. Yeah, yeah, thank, thank you, you so much, that, yeah. Father. Eucharistic revival, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I'm nine, maybe ten years old, and I remember watching uh, the Dominican priest who was the pastor of the parish I was at at the time bring the you know Eucharist back to put it in the tabernacle. 
I didn't actually care artistically for the tabernacle, but that's a side note. I, I saw him open it up, and the way that the doors opened is they kind of opened from the center outward, mm-hmm. like two flaps. So from where I was kneeling, you couldn't see it. And I always wondered, what does it look like in there as he's putting the host back in? And I just wondered, you know, is there like a blinding light that comes shining out of it or something like that? Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, well, I guess you'd have to become a priest to, to find out. And from that point forward, man, I was set. I was, just, you know, all guns in, you know. Uh, well, no. <laughs> um, I, I think that's probably the first time the idea ever clicked in my head. And, of course, I dismissed it, you know. And then, of course, I grew, and I went through all the peens of adolescence, and I got through. Um, did you always go to church? Um, no. Okay. No, so I did not. when did that happen, and, and why? Well, my family always went to, went to church. Um, and I became more and more disconnected from, you know, the experience. Um, Stop being an altar server. I, I did. Well, I mean, you, you go into high school and suddenly that becomes a, a little kid thing. And you just, mm-hmm. you stop doing that. It doesn't that. have to be. Perhaps. But um, <laughs> what happened is when I was in high school, you know, I started making friends. And we had switched over into the public schooling system. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I had a whole new plethora of ideas that were being thrown at mm-hmm. me. And I started meeting people that really looked at things completely differently. Mm. I mean, I was very used to misbehavior, but as I was used to misbehavior with a justification, you know. And I know it's not really right, but it's okay under these circumstances. I'll go to confession later. I mean, there was at least the courtesy of trying to create some sort of, you know, partial theological or religious justification for our misbehavior. And for the first time, I was meeting people that didn't even try. I mean, they just misbehaved, and they felt no qualms about misbehaving. Yeah. And they, they, you know, there was the, why not? If I can do this and I can get away with it, why shouldn't I? Yeah. I remember reading an article a little while uh, back that talked about how, you know, they were really shifting from the notion of thinking that parents were really the primary influencers of their children. Apparently they are, right up until about eight. And then after that, it's their it's their peers that yeah. really become the primary influence. When I was little, my mom used to put these little bells on my shoelaces, like almost Did like Christmas. Run bells. around or something like that. Well, yeah. I, my mother was blind, so oh, it, it helped her to keep track of where we were if we walked around because you know there were uh, they would ring and uh, mm-hmm. she. She, remi- she remembered uh, years later about how when I was a little kid, I used to go into the church, and of course, it was this big, you know, Romanesque style church that was just beautifully acoustic, and I would mm. just slam my feet down to hear the bell ring throughout the entire building. And it was a little bit embarrassing for my parents. But apparently, I came to her one day and I said, Mom, tough guys don't wear bells. And after you know that day, she took the bells off my shoes, and I don't I don't even know where I got that from, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure some of the other kids in school came up and said, "Why do you got bells on your shoes?" This was in high school. You had bells on your shoes. Oh no, this was okay. well in elementary. I'm sorry, okay. I'm stepping back, but okay, I, I carry that mentality on as I was going into high school. Um, I you know, the pecking order in most high schools are. You have the cool kids, the jocks, the bookworms, you know, the ones that get picked on. I mean, there really is an incredibly developed social hierarchy in high schools. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, when I, when I went to my 20th uh, high school you know, reunion years later. You went to your 20th? I did, in my clerics. Mm-hmm. Nice. Cool. Some of them didn't believe me. They thought I was putting them on. I remember one of the kids named Jeremy actually came up and challenged me to prove it. And I have to admit, at that particular moment, I had no idea what I could present to him. 
what do you want, my, my you know, status card? <laughs> you want me to call up the archbishop and put him on the phone for you? I don't have my, um, oh, what's that document we have to get if we go overseas? A cellebrat? I didn't have my cellebrat on me. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, I didn't bring it to my high school reunion. Show them your REI card? Uh, exactly, you know. Um, but some of them thought I was putting them on. Do you have your collar on your uh, driver's license? I don't. I There's don't like two ways people <laughs> think about that. Like you do it because people know no matter where I you go, you I have do. your collar on. Yeah. But other guys would say, well, you do that because if a police officer was to look at your driver's license, he might not give you a ticket. Right. So there's like two ways to look yeah, at it. Yeah, it also goes go the other father. direction. Let's give us a blessing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he might also give you the ticket because you have the collar on. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I got a ticket oh, you're a Catholic once priest. when I was a, yeah. I had a collar on. I wasn't a priest yet. I was a seminarian. I got a ticket. I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, That's possible too. But Okay, I'm sorry. I'm digressing. So, I, you know... Um, so 20 years? I, the reason I brought up the high school reunion is because, uh, and if there are any kids in high school who are listening to me when I say this, I remember that social hierarchy very clearly. I remember kids getting together just for support after they had been, you know, picked mm-hmm. on or degraded mm-hmm. or made to feel less important by mm-hmm. individuals that were higher in the social, you know, network. Yet yeah, none of that means anything yeah. 10 minutes after you graduate. All of that falls apart yeah. mm. because the real world doesn't function that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they're completely unconcerned with you know how you roll your pants or what socks you wear or whether or not you. I mean, when I was in high school, I can remember one of we're, the most. We're at hor- the same age, right? Oh. Real close. Yeah. So you remember the time when we tight rolled our pants? I remember getting teased because I didn't know how to do it correctly. Oh. Penny rolls is what they used to call it. Yeah, so for those who don't know what that is listening, we would take our jeans and then you would get them as tight as possible at the legs and it would be like this tight rolled up so that you would see the socks. It was the seam at the ankle. You'd fold the seam in to to hug it right around your ankle and then you'd roll it up. Yeah, (laughs) and I remember sometimes we used to put like straight pins in it because it – after every class, you were always redoing your tightrope because it would always fall apart. <laughs> Father Chu, did this you know this? No, we no, didn't. No. We didn't do this. We didn't have this in high school. But I remember, like in middle school, I think Jinko jeans. If you remember Jinko jeans, kind of yeah. like the really wide leg jeans, skater jeans were in. So I had a pair of those. Skids. We had skids. They were like skids really, are, really big pants. Yeah, Huge it was like pants. hammer pants from back yes, in the early nineties. I remember very those similar, vaguely. We didn't yeah. have those when I was in high school. But that would have been earlier. Yeah, I think when I was in high school, it was or more just kind of like, you know, like sagged pants were kind of in, you know. Z Cabaricis. If know. you ever watched Saved by the Bell, that's Slater. Zach used Morris? To, Slater. No, Slater used to always wear oh, the yeah, Z Cabaricis. I think we're dating ourselves yeah, here, yeah, Father. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is just to say that I think that's kind of back mm-hmm. now in a different way. Like is the, the whole pants rolling thing is kind of well, in, I think. Like the ways. 80s is coming back for some reason. I don't know about that. I'm waiting for the 90s to come back. The 90s are the best era. Yeah, yeah. But your flannel on. we all know that there is a social order in, in high school, and it means <coughs> nothing when you leave no, out of high no. school. Yeah. So trying to fit in and trying to win esteem with your peer group and your friends and the people that you, know, you think you have support from when you're in high school becomes more and more important. So, I mean, as I as I got through my high school years, it's just my faith started becoming weaker and weaker, and then I stop going to church. You know, I mean, I, I graduated, I got a job, um, it didn't fit my schedule, I didn't see any point in doing it, it just stopped. 
And I mean, I, I would have told you I was Catholic. I would have professed the faith if you had come up and asked me, but the living practice of it had ceased. Did you go to Christmas and Easter at least? Um, for a while. Okay. For a while, especially if I went with my parents. But um, I just got further and further away from it, and none of my friends seemed to have any interest or concern about this at all. And then, of course, I went through all the aches and pains of life. I, you know, stopped talking with half my friends, got a whole new social circuit, et cetera, et cetera. I had friends that were my, you know, really good friends for years, and we had some kind of falling out. There was a girl involved, and, you know, we didn't talk to each other for 15 years, you know, sure. things like that. It's all been there. Well, I mean, professionally, I was trying to figure out what to do with myself, and I got into music. Um, I, I actually got into recording because I was so untalented musically. I mean, I couldn't sing or play an instrument for with any impressive level, so I figured I could record it. <laughs> but you were definitely caught by music. Like, music was your... It, 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 was, it was important to me. It yeah. was. Yeah. Um, the arts. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say that. Um, yeah. I still appreciate it, but it, it, it plays such a minor role in my life right now that mm. it, it, it seems inconsequential. Mm. Um so God didn't come to you through the music? No, no, he didn't. Yeah, I was doing the midnight shift at the studios, which basically was 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Isn't that what all studios are? Does anybody record in the morning at a studio? Well, they do, but you pay a higher rate to pray, uh, to, to record when the sun's up is okay. basically what happens. So, so it's in the night? Yeah, you save like 10 bucks an hour or something like that if you do it nice. you know, at night. Um, if you're doing this professionally, you almost always do it in the daytime. Okay. So this is, what, what era are we talking? What sort of years are we talking here? Oh. Roughly. roughly. I want to say about uh, 97 to maybe 2000 and 2002 or so. Okay. So like Mountain Dew was in? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> energy drinks weren't even around then. Were they I really, remember like Maybe Hanson's out, Energy or something? I Jolt. remember coming Jolt. out into the lobby where we had, uh, you know, um, like a lounge for the clients. And I remember watching the first big Britney Spears video that came out. <laughs> And I remember listening to her sing, and you think, wow, you would never think she looks the way she looks by hearing her sing that song. It was that yeah. One More Time song or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I was active in the studios when that song came out. So this sure. is like your recording here is like there's something yeah. going on here. Mm -hmm. Like there's an echo or there's a, something going on to change your voice. or. Well, um, what happened was... Uh, I, I had a client that was supposed to show up for like a 2 a.m. session, and he didn't. Hmm. And I went back into the lounge that we had kind of set up for the the workers, and I fell asleep on the couch. Yeah. And I had a dream. I had a dream that I died. I, hmm. I don't remember exactly what happened to cause my death, but hmm. I remember... For those of you who are old enough to remember those old analog TVs where you'd turn them off and the whole screen would go, Pew! and then you'd have like that little glowing dot of light in the center. Yeah. It would really fade out slowly. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with that. I'd do it over and over again just to watch a little you know, glowing dot in the center fade out. That's what it looked like from the first-person perspective. The world turned off, and there yes. was that little glowing dot in the center, and it faded. Hmm. And I remember thinking, okay, what happens now? And nothing happened. And then I started to panic. I'm like, no, something's got to happen. And then the thought dawned on me, I don't exist enough to get upset. And then I woke up, and I mean, it, hmm. it, it was terrifying. I mean, I, I, I didn't have the words for it at the time, but I was having an existential crisis, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I, 
All in the lounge at a record studio. Yeah, I woke up and I was shaking, you know, yeah. and like sweating from the dream. And yeah. that really got me thinking about this. And uh, I mean, I must have made half the guys in the studio nuts because as soon as I got a quiet moment with them, I'm like, hey man, do you believe in God? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but I mean, for the first time, it got me really asking these questions and thinking them out. And what I kept coming back to as I was sitting here thinking about this and trying not to think about this to a certain extent, suddenly the whole universe started looking like this really flimsy tin can that held us in existence. And eventually we were going to fall out of it. And that was a terrifying thought to me. But even more terrifying than that is I started realizing if there was nothing other than this world, then all of our notions of goodness hmm. are fantasiful. All of our notions of righteousness are fantasiful. Beauty is nothing other than a subjective evaluation, and there is nothing to it other than my opinion versus your opinion. Hmm. I mean, I, it suddenly dawned on me that if that were the case, I mean, Hitler would have been recorded as the greatest hero in Europe hmm. had he won the war. I mean, yeah, he probably would have suppressed, you know, the Holocaust and things of that nature. I mean, sorry. then we're living in a world where, you know, the rapist and the murderer and the child trafficker can win. Hmm. And why shouldn't they? I mean, we really are in a dynamic where strength and the ability to push your own will is the only thing that determines, you know, the outcome of situations. This is the stuff that you're thinking about. Yeah, I was thinking oh. about it quite a bit. Um hmm. And I, I, there was just something in my heart that screamed. And it wasn't even the notion that I couldn't accept that. It was that it was just wrong. Hmm. I knew that that wasn't the case. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was years away from, like, you know, looking at C.S. Lewis's, you know, um, problem mere Christianity, yeah. problem of pain, things of that nature, yeah. where, he, where he talks about these things, how our entire lives as humans is based upon the notion that there is some sort of law that we accept that we don't even realize. I think one of the um, one of the examples he brings up in his book is, you know, you walk into a bus and you listen to people talk and they'll say things like, you're in my seat, I was there first. You know, and they're, they're effectively reaching out to some sort of standard that said, because I was in that seat first, in fairness and righteousness, you shouldn't have taken it when I just got up for a moment. Hmm. What are they basing that on? Yeah. What? I mean, it's common sense to everyone when you think about it. But if you think about it just a little bit more deeply, you realize that they're appealing to a notion of fairness, of justice, hmm. of righteousness. And usually the person who's sitting there will come up with some justification. Yes, but you left and you walked all the way to the other end of the bus and that's why you forfeited your right to the seat. Hmm. He never turns around and says, yeah, but I am completely disregarding your your claim to have it because I don't respect your concept of righteousness and fairness. Yeah. I mean, they never really disregard that. It's like there really is this imprint of decency within the human mind that we largely accept, even if we're tremendously immoral people. Yeah, and there, I mean, you could see mm. that in just in society a lot of times that will people who say that they don't believe in God or, or, or different things and they still 
are mm-hmm. genuinely sometimes good human beings. They're like, no, we don't steal from that person. And, or no, we, mm-hmm. we help a person when they ask for our help. You know, it's just something that we do. And where does that notion come from? That's what's intriguing. Yeah. Hmm. If, he's, if someone says to you, well, I don't believe in anything transcendent. I have no faith in a God. I'm a good person. I don't steal. I don't take advantage of people. I don't, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you ask them, okay, but why? Why don't you do those things? If you could do them and you could get away with them, what is stopping you from doing it? Yeah, and there's no consequence. And they'll usually respond, because it's wrong. Why is it wrong? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> what are you basing that in? And they're like, well, we all know it's wrong. Everyone agrees it's wrong. I'm like, okay, I accept that it's wrong, but you're appealing to some sort of transcendent standard. Mm-hmm. And you're acknowledging that you see that transcendent standard, but it has no basis in anything other than you're recognizing it at that point. You are recognizing something. You're effectively walking through a field and you encounter a fence. Mm. And you're like, here is the limit. This is the fence. Everyone sees the fence is there. Everyone knows the fence is there. Mm. But nobody stops and asks, how did the fence get there? Who determined the fence should be in that position? Mm. Who put the fence in the ground and who planted the anchors for it? You know, Mm. they just accept it's there. So this is all happening after you had this dream. Yeah. Yeah, I was going crazy. I was. Um, Did you go talk to a priest? Did you go to a Not at first. Not at first. So you just talked to random people in the studio? I wanted to hear people's opinions. I wanted to hear what people said. I I didn't know what to do. I was working 12 hours a night. I mean, uh, I I felt kind of enclosed. But, I mean, back to what I was saying before, that God has a tendency to provide. Uh, There was a guy who came into the recording studio. He was a complete scam artist. Hmm. Very talented, but he was a total scammer. And he had talked me into working on a project with him where the time I put into it, which was my own private time use in the studio, was effectively a financial investment. I remember we wrote up a whole contract. Actually, when I moved, I found it again just a couple of years ago. And I thought, yeah, this is worthless. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he wanted to do an entire uh, compilation of different styled music. And in one of the recordings, he wanted a string section. That was completely out of my realm of familiarity. I mean, I had recorded all kinds of things, but I had never recorded a a string section. And partially as a legitimate excuse, and partially because I just didn't want to put any more work into this project, because I felt he was milking it to death, and I had put probably over 100 hours of work into something I thought would take 15 hours. And he's like, we signed a contract, you know. I never saw a dime from any of that, by the way. But, uh, you know, I, I told him he needed to find somebody who had a background recording strings. And then he called me up and he told me he found an old Motown engineer. And this old Motown engineer felt very, very comfortable doing string work. And uh, he wanted to have a lunch meeting with him. And he thought it was important that I be there since I was a, um, an investor in the project. And I'm like, okay, fine. So, you know, I'm working midnights, but I got myself out of bed and went to this luncheon meeting. I think I was late. And I found myself sitting across from, you know, this old Motown engineer. And as we were talking, and he's just giving his background, he mentions that he used to be a, a, a seminarian studying for the Catholic priesthood. Wow. And I thought, oh, you know, and suddenly all these questions that I had been wow. throwing at people, I suddenly really wanted to throw at him because I'm like, oh, he studied things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, I think we spent, you know, 30 minutes talking about the project, and then I spent like an hour picking his brain, and then he gave me his phone number, you know. Wow. So I thought, okay. I mean, he was an old guy. He was married. He had kids. Um, 
but you know, I, I, I did call him up and we did work on the project a little bit together and we started talking. And then so when he started talking about this Jesuit who wrote these books, and he's like, you gotta read these books. Hmm. Um, it was Father John Hardin. Mm-hmm. Uh, may he rest in peace and may his cause be favored by God, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I mean, I, I tried to read his books and you know, I, okay, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I, I figured I could read a book. And then I tried <laughs> to read his book and I'm like, what the heck is he talking about? And it wasn't even that it was super complicated, but when he wrote this book, he was clearly writing it during you know the era of John Paul II. Mm. And he's making references, you know, kind of discreetly, trying to combat all of these modernistic heretical ideas that were becoming so commonplace. And he's doing it in support of Veritatis Splendor. He's doing it in support of Evangelium, uh, I think it was Evangelium Vitae. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, he's doing it from this perspective, and I have no idea what he's criticizing at all. Hmm. And he's using, you know, terms I'm not really terribly familiar with. But I was fascinated because he seemed to have a real grip on this, and he was talking about a lot of the questions that I had going on in my head. Yeah. And that's when I thought, you know, I think I have to look at this again. Were you going to church at this point or no? I went back. Okay. Hmm. That was a growth process. I went back to a church. And, of course, I bumped into uh, this old seminarian or this ex-seminarian when I was leaving. Hmm. And he looked at me and he's like, oh, good, you came to Mass. And he looked at me and he says, so you got to confession, right? And I'm like, yes. wasn't true. But I was like, you know, I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I was so embarrassed I couldn't tell him I didn't even think to do that, you know. But, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I started figuring out the things that they thought were important by talking hmm. to them. And that's when uh, this guy came up to me in the back of the church and told me that, uh, you know, Ed had told him that I was finding my way back into the faith and that they had a catechetical study group, and he asked me if I wanted to come to it. And I was reluctant, but I did. And, I mean, from that point, it just kept growing. I mean, I started going back to church again. But interestingly enough, um, I really relate to what St. Augustine talks about. I mean, he converted to Christianity intellectually long before he converted to it in his heart. I mm-hmm. mean, I used to mockingly say that I spent a couple of years as a fully devout practicing heathen, and then I started finding my way back into the church because I could see the semblance of truth and the beauty in the consistency mm-hmm. of what was being presented before me. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what was striking to me is some of the hardest, most unpopular teachings of the church. I, I mean, I, I wasn't sure how I could live them, but I had incredible esteem for the fact that the church had taken that position hmm. and didn't budge. Yeah. Hmm. Every other group budged. Every other group folded because hmm. this is the way the world was moving. Hmm. I remember when uh, there was a girl I was involved with for a while, and she had made a statement to the effect of, the problem is, is that the world changes and the church doesn't. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> and that's wonderful. Because it's not supposed to change. I mean, if there really is a truth, it will be the truth. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you might Hebrews. understand the fullness of that truth yeah. more throughout the years, but it's the same truth. I think it's Hebrews. It talks about how Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. forever. Therefore, yeah. do not be taken in by all these you know new and novel ideas and teachings. Yeah. I mean, I wanted yeah. that anchor, and I realized that the church really must have taken it on the chin for you know, unflinchingly holding some of these very unpopular positions as the world was going through the 60s and the 70s and the mm-hmm. things of that nature. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, I, I, I started researching those because I couldn't justify them and explain them theologically or philosophically. Mm-hmm. But I had an incredible esteem for the fact that they held the line on these issues. Mm-hmm. When the whole world was pushing at them saying, you gotta get with this. No, mm-hmm. they held the line. They never budged. And this is, sorry to back up, but this is all, this, all this is coming about in some sense providentially because this guy wanted you to do this kind of project yeah. investment, so to speak, Yeah, I, that was kind of a scam yeah. <laughs> in some ways, and yet God used that in a very powerful way to intervene and reveal to you not only the truth of uh, the gospel of Jesus, but also like the full deposit of faith, the Holy Mother Church, and also eventually your vocation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So it started growing. It started growing slowly. I remember figuring out how to pray the rosary again. Wow. And then I discovered to my amazement that there are like things you're supposed to meditate on when you say all those Hail Marys, you know. Yeah. It's not just an exercise of, you know, like 50 push-ups in the spiritual life. Hail Mary one, Hail Mary two, you know. I mean, there really was supposed to be a depth to this. Yeah. And I mean, as I was learning these things, I mean, I, I started trying to apply them. And of course, there was a a certain level of resistance in me because there mm. there was some spiritual work that was involved. You know, mm-hmm. I did have to start turning away from things. And then, you know, I started becoming really discontent working in the studio environment. I mean, it was just, it just started looking more and more grody to me, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good word, too. And I put in my letter of resignation. that I don't think my boss ever forgave me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I think he really took it personal. But, I mean, he was running us on a real, you know, um, there was only a couple guys that were keeping the whole place going. And I mean, I gave him two weeks notice and he asked if I could hold on another two weeks after that. And I did, but yeah, he, he got pretty cold to me after that. I, I, I could tell. Well, yeah. I mean, Jesus says that like, if you're going to follow me, people are going to mm-hmm. turn away from you. If they turned away from me, they're going to turn away from you. Yeah. So, I mean, you met that immediately when you said, okay, this is the stance. So, like what brought you to the church was that hard anchor and that hard line. And so you realize, I have to live by that standard, too. Did you find, though, that, too, off that, like, I imagine when you talk to your boss, like, you probably didn't just say, like, hey, I don't like working here anymore. It's more like something's kind of caught me, and I don't think I can work here anymore. How did you deal about it? Well, I wrote him a letter of resignation, and I put it in his mailbox. I just told him, you know, I've reached a point in my life where I don't see myself going in this direction anymore. Mm -hmm. There are too many things that are making me uncomfortable here. I have Mm -hmm. to leave, and I'm afraid, you know, any attempt to try to change my mind on this would be futile, you know. Yeah. But I didn't go around saying, hey, this place is gross. Yeah, but did you, did, <laughs> you know? did, I mean, did he have some sense that, like, all this stuff in any basic way was, like, happening in your heart between you and God? And I don't think I discussed it with him. Okay. But I, I think he, he must have got an inkling. Okay. Um, I mean, something was clearly going yeah. on. Uh, yeah. I told you, I kept having these weird conversations yeah, yeah, yeah. with like, everybody. You guys believe in God? Or? Yeah, I mean... Um, I, 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 I was searching at the time. Yeah. I was looking for an anchor. Yeah. I mean, even some of the clientele that came in, they would yeah. have their own interesting spiritualities, and I would listen to what they were talking about. Yeah. I was never drawn to any of them, but I, yeah. I remember, you know, paying attention to the things that they were saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I left the studios, you know, yeah. and I, I briefly tried to get in with another studio, and I realized, uh, no, that, that, that's not, that's not going to work for me either. Mm. But I had to do something, you know. So I took a job as a short order cook, and I just started, you know, cooking at a Coney Island. Mm. Um, and I was there for a couple of years as I was trying to get my head straight about all this stuff. Um, but I kept studying the faith, and I, I, I kept going to church. It was mm. an imperfect practice, but I kept going back, and I would 
go to confession and I would try to get myself cleaned up. And I remember going through this whole period where I would learn more and more about the faith and I'd be like, oh, how do I do that? You know, it seems unlivable, but then I would pray about it and I would learn more about it. And then I would figure out how this was looked at historically. And then I thought, no, no, yeah, that, that could work. Mm-hmm. That could happen. Mm-hmm. What I realized is that I was always looking at it from the perspective that I had to live this faith within an environment where everybody around me wasn't. Mm. You know, everybody around me had issues with it. Everybody around me had, you know, difficulties. Um, I, I mean, all these objections, they occur to me now. I mean, I, I, amongst, the, you know, the young people in my parishes and things mm-hmm. like that, I mm-hmm. don't see anything that resembles that kind of resistance or that kind of um, mm. sort of little se- uh, semi-rebellion. Um, so I, I, trying to live that out seemed very, very difficult at that point point in my life. Hmm. But I kept going forward with it. Um, I kept studying. I kept learning things. And as I kept learning things, I remember uh, I went on this little retreat because I decided I was going to try to finish this catechetical program. And you were supposed to do like modified Ignatian retreat Mm -hmm. to conclude it. Mm -hmm. And as I was on the retreat, I I remember praying, Lord, just tell me what you want me to do. Hmm. And the idea just kind of popped in my head. Could I be a priest? And then, of course, I thought, oh, no, (laughs) no, 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 not that. (laughs) And, of course, I backed away from that, and I tried to not think about that actively for a while because that, you know, that just didn't seem to go along with everything that I had in front of me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I... I wanted to be a father. I wanted mm-hmm. to, you know, get married at some point. I wanted to uh, figure out a way to get mm-hmm. into business. It's, you know, things of that nature. And I just didn't mm-hmm. see that being compatible with, you know, that kind of calling. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting, though, is I started getting fascinated with the idea. I started getting fascinated with priests, and I started getting fascinated with religious figures. Mm-hmm. And I started, you know, paying attention to whatever I saw them in films. I started looking up, you know, little mm-hmm. things about them and reading things about them. I started wondering, what does a priest do the other six days of the week mm-hmm. when he's not, you know, occupied saying Mass all morning yeah. on Sunday? What does his life consist of? Mm-hmm. What, make, what gives these religious enough faith that they're willing to completely consecrate their lives to lives of devotion and service and prayer and adoration mm-hmm. uh, when it completely separates them from the world? Mm-hmm. And everything that the world basically says we should be striving after and is going to make our lives worthwhile and happy. Yeah. I wasn't ready to embrace it, but I definitely wanted to know what was going on in them, what mm-hmm. makes them tick, mm-hmm. what, what led them to that thought process. Mm-hmm. And in the process of it, um, as I was wrapping up this catechetical program, I got talked into teaching catechism at one of the local parishes, and um, the DRE liked what I was doing. I mean, at first I thought, I can't teach this. I don't know it well enough. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, uh, this girl talked me into going and just meeting the other catechists. Mm-hmm. And when I went and met the other catechists and talked with them, I started realizing, oh no, if they can teach us, I can teach it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so the DRE liked what I was doing. He liked the way I was running the class. He liked what he was hearing from the, you know, the young kids as they were coming out of my little, you know, after-hours uh, CCD program. Mm-hmm. And that's when he told me, you know, if you wanna go take, you know, actual classes at the seminary. There's a program that the AOD runs that will help you pay for it. Mm. And I thought, how do I say no to that? So I looked into it, and on one level, I I did want to study a little bit more intensely, but I told you, I was getting this fascination for priests, and I thought, I can get into the seminary. Mm. 
I could actually talk to them a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I could actually, like, you know, spend some time with seminarians. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I signed up and I took two classes <coughs> at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit, my alma mater, where I'm sitting right now in front of these cameras all pointed all at All of me. us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the heart. Yes, the heart. So I came into the heart and, uh, you know, I started uh, talking with guys. You know, mm-hmm. I, I wanted to know who they were. I wanted to know their background. I wanted to know if they, they struggled with this decision at all or if they like kind of floated in here and everything was kind of just paved out for them smoothly by God. And, you know, I found out that they were real people. You know, they had interests. They watched football. They, they were artists that wanted to start artistic studios up on the third floor of the seminary in yeah. some abandoned room. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, you know, they, uh, some of them had broken up with girlfriends in order to come into the seminary because yeah. they felt the call that strongly. Yeah. And sometimes they still struggled with that. Yeah. They were guys that came in here trying to figure out what God wanted them to do, and they were praying their way through it, and they were allowing God to speak to them organically in this process. Yeah, yeah. And that's when one of them asked me if I would ever consider coming on a discernment weekend. Hmm. And I, I thought about that, and I was mm-hmm. a little afraid to do it, but I put in a request saying I was interested. Mm-hmm. And amazingly enough, I got a response the very next day from the vocation office in the mail. Mm-hmm. Because the vocation office is that quick and that responsible and that diligent about following through on inquiries. Even yeah. faster now. Well, of course, it actually helped that someone had anonymously put my name into the Triadon program about a week <laughs> earlier, and I didn't sure. know it. Sure. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, I got a response in the mail the next day. Um, so I called up the vocation director at the time, and we had a conversation. And I came in, I did a discernment weekend. Uh, of course, my parents are just soaking all this in. I mean, they watched the change that had occurred over, you know, the last couple of years, and they were just, you know, astonished by it. Yeah. My Baptist father didn't know exactly what to make of it, but he was sure. very proud of me. Um so, you know, I, I went on the discernment weekend, and you know, discernment weekends aren't real high pressure. At least they weren't when I did it. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. yeah, you come pressure. in, you look around the seminary, you ask questions, you stay in one of the guest rooms of the seminary. Uh, they give you kind of a little bit of a taste of what it would be like to come in here and spend time studying and discerning. And I was fascinated by it. Uh, a couple of years later, a priest friend of mine told me he knew I was going to come into formation after he saw me on the discernment weekend because mm. he said, I left the discernment weekend smiling. Mm. He said, I knew you were going to come in and at least discern at that point. Mm. So, you know, after that, I went back to my job. And I just kept trying to take this in, and I was letting it all unfold mm. in my mind organically. And then the vocation director called me up and asked me if I wanted to come in and have a conversation about it, which I did. And I expressed a lot of my concerns, a lot of my fears, a lot of my anxiety. And he asked me if I'd want to have a follow-up conversation. And I said, sure. So he called me for the follow-up. And I was driving down to his office, trying to figure out how to tell him I wanted to take another year and pray about it, discern that I wasn't ready to do this yet. Hmm. And then the thought popped in my head, why do I need another year? This is stupid. Hmm. I mean, I was quickly reaching the point where if I didn't at least go in and try it, If I didn't at least give God a year to think about it and really put myself in the environment, I could very easily see that I was going to be an old man wondering on my, you know, in my final winter years if Mm. I never did what God wanted me to do and I had never really given it a fair chance. Mm. So by the time I pulled up in front of his office, I was like, give me the form. I'm ready to... (laughs) Give me the form. I want the application now. That's how, that's how guys ask for the and application. And then he wouldn't give me the application. Give me it. you got to be kidding me. He wouldn't give it to yeah. me. 
uh, he's like, no, 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 no. Let's talk about it, you know. And we talked about it, and he sent me home to discern it for another two weeks. So I came back two weeks later, and I had a conversation. I told him, no, I'm still where I was. I'm ready to give this a shot. Let's do it. So he gave me the application, hmm. which is probably the most daunting application I've ever had to fill out in my life. I remember they made me write essays on who is God to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does service of God mean? Yeah, <laughs> you know? right, right, right. What is your understanding of evil? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I'm not sure if it's records, the same. Record uh, studio stories? I tried not to, but of course then, you know. Oh, I, man, that would have been perfect. I had to go through the... Um, there's a checklist of things you have to do. Apparently, yeah, yeah. one of the first things they do is send you for a psychological consultation right, right, right. to make sure you're not crazy. Because yeah. heaven knows, if you think you might want to be a priest, you must be nuts, right, Craig? Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> not how it goes. Yeah, we just want to make sure that everybody is okay mm-hmm. and ready to take on some type of responsibility and to have a. I mean, as a vocation director, my job, yes, is to figure out whether or not guys are called to the priesthood, but always in the forefront it's a guy's salvation before his vocation so you want to make sure that this is going to be a good experience i can appreciate that now at the time i was like i looked at it a little differently but i think now i can appreciate the diligence um but i went through all the requirements and i got the application done Hmm. i had it in Mm -hmm. and then i didn't think about it Hmm. for like a month Until I got a call on my cell phone from the rector congratulating me, saying me saying that I had been accepted, and mm. I thought, "Wow, okay, it's go time." Yeah, so I had to go and tell my boss I was leaving the restaurant. <laughs> Another two weeks. I had to pack up all my stuff and you know move out of the, move out of the house and move into the seminary, and uh, nice. that was a bit of a daunting adventure. But I did it, and next thing I knew, I was a seminarian, and. That was a elongated process that uh, I Did usually... Did you do any of your music in the seminary? Were you a cantor at some point or... No, no. Sang in the choir? I, I sang in the choir. I sang in the choir. Okay. Um, I did little things with, uh, with Dr. Prowse and things of that nature. I took a few piano lessons. Uh, mm-hmm. But no, I, I... In retrospect, I realized what I was doing is I was trying to intellectualize this. I was trying mm-hmm. to think my way through it. I kept trying to figure if I could just learn this stuff, then I could find out what Augustine said and what Thomas Aquinas said and what John of the Cross said. If I could just jam all this stuff into my head, everything would fall into place perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I think one of my big mistakes is that I didn't approach it enough on the relationship of the heart. And I, I think I did have some problems with formation because of that, because mm. they, they recognized some aspects of that. And it's not that I wasn't praying. I was praying, but I was kind of doing it from a defensive position, you know. Mm. I, I was still holding on to the notion that I could turn back. You know, I could go back and I could have my life in the world again if I needed to. But then I was, you know, uh, everything kept going well in every other perspective. I mean, the studies mm-hmm. were going well. I liked the guys in the seminary. You know, and I, I, I did have a tendency to be a bit of a problem solver, you know, in the seminary. Nice. And as I was progressing, you know, I was getting closer and closer to ordination. And the formation really started leaning into me tremendously. And they said, we need to know that you want this. Yeah. And, of course, in their own way, they were trying to get me to express things openly without asking them which was interesting but Mm. i I really get you out of your head it was interesting to me because it suddenly became very very clear what the problem was and what the problem was is that i knew i could do it Mm -hmm. i knew i could 
be, be ordained. I knew I could function as a priest. I even mm-hmm. knew I could do it um, probably pretty well. Mm-hmm. But was I going to be happy doing it? Mm-hmm. Was it going to be this perpetual penance of having, you know, forsaken a wife and forsaken family and forsaken mm-hmm. the idea of ever having children and putting myself at the service of the people of God uh, mm-hmm. indefinitely mm-hmm. and committing myself to that religiously? Was it always going to be this kind of brokenness and agony in my heart? Mm-hmm. And I realized what I effectively was doing is I was asking God for an assurance that I could do this and I would mm-hmm. be happy. Mm-hmm. And I remember going into chapel, right downstairs here, okay, and just begging him for mm. a couple hours, you got to show me that this is going to be joyful. Mm. you got to show me that I will have affection and I will have joy. I mean, not in a yeah, yeah. Not in a marital sense, but that yeah. there will be, you know, a level of interpersonal connection and I'll have friendships and I'll have, yeah. you know, um, at least emotional intimacies that are going to fulfill me on the level of the heart. Yeah. And I think probably the most pivotal moment is that moment where one of the deacons just asked me, look, are you able to say that you want to be a celibate? And it just came out of my mouth, yes. Yeah. And as soon as it did, it's like the lights turned on. Yeah. It's like everything fell right into order in my heart exactly where it was supposed to be. Yeah. And I knew I could. Yeah. I knew I would be happy. Yeah. I knew I could find joy giving of myself in love within the ministry. Yeah. And that that wouldn't be enough. That would be more than enough. Yeah. I knew that. Yeah, yeah. Amen. But it took me so much effort to get myself to actually put myself out there enough to receive that. Yeah. So, yeah, if you're asking where God worked, that's where he worked. And that's where he worked the most. I think a lot of guys get tripped up about that, too. It's like, am I going to be happy and... You know, I've, I've had guys even say something to the effect, well, I want what God wants. Well, of course, we all want that. But, like, but I don't have any desire whatsoever to be a priest. It doesn't look attractive to me. But mm. if God's willing it for me, I go, well, maybe you would have some desire for it, even if it's just on an intellectual level like it was for you. But there's got to be something yeah. that the yeah, Lord yeah. has put on your heart to I have a desire. I would agree. If know? there's a calling, it's not going to be repugnant. Exactly. I mean, if, yeah. if there's a calling, even if it is like me, and you have to look at it from a couple different angles over a period of time, and it becomes more attractive and it becomes more comfortable, yeah. Until it just fits. Yeah. Um, what it, I can tell you is I've been a priest for almost 12 years now. And and are you happy? Yeah. Yeah, he's I happy. I absolutely am. And I would... <laughs> Everybody, he's happy. <laughs> Father Slayton's happy. He did it. Yes, I'm a happy <laughs> priest <laughs> most days. <laughs> I mean, the life is not an easy life. It certainly has its challenges. But, I mean, what great things are ever done that don't have challenges, well, you know? Any, um, tell me a vocation that doesn't have problems and their own crosses. If it doesn't have a problem, odds are you're you not are doing skirting it right. your vocation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. I, I just think it's just a point out one time, I think it's really cool and beautiful and actually very just like how God works, it seems to me at least. You would know better than more than I would here. But how it kind of mysteriously almost arose in your heart or somewhat somewhat mysteriously as you're kind of wrestling with that question, like, do I really, you know, deacon, the deacon asks you, like, do you just want to say yes to this? And it just kind of comes out. Yeah. And sometimes it's like those sorts of moments that, like, clarify everything that's been happening in your interior for a long time. But you're kind of like overthinking and it just realize you realize like, oh, my gosh, this is actually I do want this, you know, and, and maybe as guys are thinking about coming to the seminary, it's like you can kind of overthink it sometimes, I think, in 
process it through so many from so many different angles. And sometimes the Lord just kind of works, and it, it, it's not like a voice in the sky or written in the sky, but it is kind of that like I actually really want to do this. I think. Yeah. You know, and there's just something I think very profound about that. I don't just to point out. Well, it was all, you know, within the internal dynamic, so it's a little bit hard to... Sure, yeah, yeah. You're always searching for vocabulary to try to express it. Yeah. Um, and but if I mean, you can't you... express it in words, you paint a picture. <laughs> there you go. That's right. You write That's what a the song. artists do. Yeah. <laughs> you make a poem. You throw some beats down in the studio. You go yeah. riding on your motorcycle. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. So every time a young guy has come to me, and I have sent a couple of them to you already. I know, yeah. Um, and they want to have a conversation about this. What I usually tell them is, you know, would be, I think the most authentic prayer you can say searching for your vocation is, Lord, I know you want me to love. How? Mm-hmm. That's the question. Yeah. Because, I mean, the very first calling of the Christian life is to follow Christ, and Christ, you know, is love, all right? Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's not even a question. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes it does challenge us in terms of what is that supposed to look like? Because mm-hmm. sometimes love isn't real warm and tender inside. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't always um, feel good to love. No, sometimes it doesn't. But mm-hmm. I, we are always called to will the good of the other for the sake of the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a daily challenge. It is. But that's what we're called to do. So the question Especially is, while I'm driving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Especially when every freeway exit that leads <laughs> to the seminary has been shut down for construction. <laughs> that's Michigan. Every road's under construction. Well, yeah. yeah. So that's that's what it boils down to. And if you keep authentically putting it in front of God and just saying, right. what is that supposed to look like? Yeah. But God is not going to ask you to do something that is going to make you perpetually miserable. Yeah. He's not going to ask you to live in elongated periods of darkness. Um there, there yeah. will be a deep-seated joy yeah. in doing what God is calling you to yeah. do. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, that's the short version of my vocation. That's the short version. Yes, right that's on. the short Everybody, version. Everybody, we, we could see how um, you're very philosophical and you have abundantly thought through a lot of things. I tried very hard not to use the word metaphysical. <laughs> but it's good. It's like, you know, like you needed to know intellectually, but then your heart had to catch up to your head. Yeah. And sometimes, what is that old saying, you know, the farthest distance is... It's the 18-inch journey. Yeah. From, from the, the head to the heart. The heart. From the yeah. head yeah. to the heart, you mm-hmm. know. Well, thank you, Father Slayton, for coming on and sharing your story yeah. with us. You're welcome. It was very fascinating. It, it was fascinating, and I thought it was beautiful how you kind of... I mean, you can see the philosophical kind of questionings and wanderings, but you articulated it in a very human way. So that was really that was really awesome. Plus, yeah. That's the word, pastoral side. The word in the street is, you have a Harley with ape hanger bars. I just think that's... <laughs> Awesome. That is so righteous. I'm glad I was able to do something that impressed you, Father. Yeah, no. <laughs> Father, you're rocking here. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Father Slayton, you want to rock us out with a beautiful prayer? I can give it a shot. All, All right. right. No, okay. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are the creator, you who are the source, and in your goodness you revealed yourself to be love itself. We pray for your guidance, not only for ourselves, not only for our families, not only for our archdiocese, and the leadership that has been put in place. But we pray for every person who is listening, especially for those young men and women out there who are searching for something more within their own hearts. We pray that they might be open to hearing your call and that they might find within their hearts the trust to lead wherever it is that you guide them. We ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
In the, the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Slayton. You're welcome. Thanks, Father. You've been listening to Men of the Hearts, a monthly podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit Office of Priestly Vocations. Join me, Father Craig Guerra. And Father Drew, maybe. As we explore the priesthood, hear vocation stories from priests all over the Archdiocese and answer questions about discerning a priestly vocation. Tune in every month to wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at our awesome website, DetroitPriestlyVocations.com. 